Here is a quote by Anne K. Howard from her book, Confessions with a Serial Killer. In just nine months from February to October 2003, seven individuals in and around New Britain, Connecticut went missing. All their bodies were subsequently found in close proximity to one another in a wooded lot behind a suburban strip mall. The mall could not have appeared more ordinary in location or style, and yet, for many years, as patrons ate Subway, paid to have their car mufflers fixed, or their hair cut, purchased their beer, or poked around Daddy's Junky Music Store, the bodies of the killer's victims lay rotting on the swampy earth, located just a few hundred yards away. Hi, True Crime fans. You're tuning into Coffee, Murder, and Mystery, a true crime podcast where we discuss murder, mystery, and the supernatural. Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Melissa Lancaster. I wanted to thank all of our new Patreon members for supporting our podcast and let everyone know that we uploaded pictures to the Patreon of mine and Mandy's tours at Eloise and the Ohio State Reformatory. So if you're interested, go check those out. The quote that I read to you was from an Anne K. Howard book called Confessions of a Serial Killer. That was the actual introduction to the book she wrote on William Devin Havel, who we are speaking about today. It's a really good book. It follows the progression of Anne speaking with him to gain the information that she needed and how they kind of had this strange friendship where she knew what he did. But on the other hand, she got to see the man that, you know, he chose to show her that he was. And it was just kind of a strange mixture of you know, she doesn't trust him, but, you know, he's providing her with these things. It's it's a really good book, and I, de- I definitely recommend it. William Devin Havel was a serial killer, and this podcast will contain explicit content. Oftentimes, we see serial killers have had a horrible childhood riddled with abuse, which doesn't make their actions and killing excusable whatsoever or even understandable. But at least we can identify a factor. Then there are cases like this, where this person did not seem to have any abuse in their childhood. Some trauma, yes, but not an abnormal amount. This is one of those cases where those factors just aren't there. We don't see a history of mental illness in the family. Not that that means that there wasn't. I feel like we all wonder, what makes these people do these things? And I've said before that there's a whole percentage of the population like me. I'm genuinely compassionate. I care about strangers. I care about other human beings. But then there's a whole percentage of the population who doesn't commit murder solely because of the repercussions. They don't want to go to jail. And these people are our husbands, wives, children, aunts, uncles. And we will most likely never even know. And then there are the people who choose not to care about the repercussions. They have such a drive to murder that they can't help themselves. They commit murder knowing that they will most likely be caught and go to prison. William Devin Howell claims to have had a good childhood, 
Born on February 11, 1970, he claimed to have had decent, loving parents. He says they spanked him, but only when he broke the rules. And he states they never, ever beat him. He never had bruises. The family had a good amount of money. They had everything that they needed. William has gone by a few different names, which I think is semi-common with the name William. You know, there's Bill, there's Will. He often went by his middle name, Devin, to people that he knew. But for the sake of this podcast and to limit confusion, I'm going to call him Bill. Bill claims he never killed animals as a child and doesn't conform to what we consider to be the average background of a serial killer. Bill did go through a different type of trauma as a child. His mother did grow ill. She had breast cancer. Bill claims that he was only 12 or 13 when he started using alcohol to help cope with the stress of watching his mother slowly decline from the cancer. William's parents were in their older years when he was born. Bill had three older brothers. The two oldest were about 15 years older than Bill. One of Bill's older brothers would later say Bill had too much freedom as a child. His mother's passing at 15 probably didn't help that either. In the years before her death, Bill helped care for his mother every day after school until his father came home. He remembers her asking him to get her his father's gun. She wanted to end it, but he wouldn't do it. When his father arrived home every day, Bill would take off to hang out with his girlfriend Mandy. Bill would end up getting Mandy pregnant not once but twice. The couple broke up and Mandy moved on. She married a man who lived out of state. Bill claims that when people ask him if he has any children, he simply says no. He doesn't want to bring them into his problems, and he hasn't seen them in decades. He does claim, though, that he did actually miss them every day. He would picture them in their younger years. They were seven and two when he last saw them, and they just remained in his memory that way, and he would think of them all the time. His first bit of trouble when he was young seemed to be when Bill and a friend were riding their bikes at 15. They noticed that the employees at Sears had forgotten to lock up the garden center gates. They wandered in and decided to steal a chainsaw, but they triggered a silent alarm and the boys were caught. Not long after, Bill stole a dirt bike out of someone's yard. His friends ratted him out when police started asking them questions. Bill had two DUIs and a driving on a suspended license charge before he was even 19, and this basically paved his path to never driving legally as an adult. He would continue to be in and out of jail after that for driving without a license. Bill was only a teenager the first time he picked up a prostitute. He would wait for his father to go to sleep and sneak over to his girlfriend Mandy's house. Taking his dad's car, they would joyride. But Mandy wasn't home one night, so Bill drove around alone, and he saw a sex worker and gave her $20, and she provided him with oral sex. That was the beginning of a long, toxic relationship Bill would have with the ladies of the night. He started picking them up whenever he was alone and saw one. He boasted once that through his life, he had probably picked up a thousand prostitutes. Bill grew up in Virginia, but moved to Connecticut in the early 2000s. He moved to be with a woman 11 years younger than him, 
who he had met online. Bill didn't have trouble meeting women. As a matter of fact, Bill, although he seemed quiet and reserved when people first met him, did not have trouble making or maintaining friendships. Most serial killers are withdrawn and have trouble in this area, but Bill had lifelong friendships from his childhood. Even when Bill and his friends lived in different states, he kept in contact and would make the drive to visit them. Bill moved to Connecticut and dated his younger girlfriend. He even moved into her parents' house with her. But ultimately, their relationship didn't last. She wanted to get married and Bill was opposed. They remained friends. And she even went on to meet another man whom she did marry. And Bill was a guest at the couple's wedding. After they broke up, Bill considered moving back to Virginia, but met another woman so quickly that he stayed in Connecticut. The relationship with her was short-lived, and I'm not sure how long it took, but Bill would eventually meet Dorothy Holcomb. I don't actually know how long their relationship lasted, but Dorothy even bought a van from her parents and let Bill exclusively drive it for his long care service. It seems like Dorothy didn't even have a key. It wasn't a white van, if that's what you're picturing, because I know that I was. It was this blue van that looked beat up and older. It wasn't even one shade of blue. The body was a dark shade of blue, and the front of the van had lighter blue pieces that looked like they had been replaced with junkyard parts. Not that there's anything wrong with that. My dad would always get parts from the junkyard if my vehicle needed something, I mean, a vehicle is a vehicle. I'm just using that to describe the van to you. It just looked older and just kind of junky, which in the hindsight makes it look creepy, but it probably didn't look creepy to people at the time. This podcast is sponsored by Podbean. Podbean is the easiest way to create your own podcast. We use Podbean to host Coffee, Murder, and Mystery, Download the free Podbean podcast app to start, record, and publish your very own podcast in minutes. Podbean provides everything you need to run your podcast, and you can record and publish episodes directly from the app on your phone. Download the free Podbean app today. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Head on over to Podbean at www.podbean.com and use the code PODCAST21 for your first 30 days of podcast hosting for free. Check it out. Bill was a drifter and would sometimes sleep at Dory's house, but other times, a lot of times it seems like, he would sleep in his van. Bill would pick up other drifters he met to party a bit, or he would pick up prostitutes. Bill stated that he often had sex at least three times a day. He had long fantasized about rape, and at one point, he just decided not to care anymore. Not to care that it was cruel or hurting someone else. Not to care that there was prospect of getting caught. After all, Bill often hung out with drug addicts and prostitutes, and he felt that their lives were meaningless and worthless. And that mentality is something that Bill shared with other murderers. He didn't care that these women were somebody's mother, sister, or daughter. And Bill had even known Nilsa Arismendi. Maybe not well, 
but he had partied with her and her boyfriend on occasion. Nilsa went by Maria when she worked the streets to support her and her boyfriend's drug habit. The couple had been together for many, many years, like over ten, I think. They had known each other since they were children. They had tried to get clean multiple times, but detoxing was hard. Her boyfriend was trying to talk Nilsa into trying again. And the next morning, Nilsa asked Bill to give her a ride and offered him gas money. Nilsa and her boyfriend said goodbye for the day. They had plans to talk more about getting clean later that evening. Nilsa's boyfriend wasn't concerned about her. After all, they knew Bill. But that was the last time that Nilsa's boyfriend would ever see her. Bill raped her, and while she fought him, and she fought him hard, Bill strangled her. Bill drove her body to the edge of a parking lot behind a strip mall. He had wrapped her in garbage bags. He heaved her body over the guardrail and watched her tumble down the embankment to a secluded spot below. It wasn't Bill's first kill, but Nilsa's boyfriend had seen her get into Bill's van, and it would be his first conviction. It took a while for Nilsa's boyfriend to get through to anyone regarding her disappearance. I mean, all true crime fans know what it's like when a drug addict or prostitute goes missing. Often, no one listens. But eventually, someone did, and this crime caught up to Bill. It was 2004 when Bill became a suspect in Nilsa's disappearance. They picked him up on a driving charge, and when they showed him a picture of Nilsa, his face went cold. Bill was silent and asked for a lawyer. Bill denied the murder, and he didn't think that they would get him on it. After all, Nilsa was missing. They didn't even have a body. But what they did have was Bill's van and DNA testing. When investigators matched blood in Bill's van to Nilsa, things started to look a bit different. Bill had a good cover story, though. He claimed that Nilsa's boyfriend gave her a bloody nose in the van. But investigators also found strange videotapes in Bill's van. They didn't depict murder, but deviant sexual acts. But none of the women in the tapes could be identified. The tapes were recorded in a way that their faces didn't show. Bill continued to persist his innocence, but he was facing a lot of potential time if convicted. And his public defender ended up talking him into taking an Alford plea. If you're not familiar, an Alford plea is basically stating that they have enough evidence to convict you, but you're not actually admitting that you committed the crime. You're basically just throwing in the towel on the trial. And he got a 15-year first-degree manslaughter charge from the Alford plea in 2007. But then, just a few weeks later, a hunter wandered into the area behind the West Farms shopping mall and found human bones. The area was searched and the bodies of Diane Cusack, Joyvaline Martinez, and Mary Jane Menard were recovered. All these women had gone missing in 2003, just like Nilsa. These women were living similar lives to her as well. Bill had a type, and his type was women he felt were disposable. But what Bill didn't realize was that these women were loved, and that times were slowly and still are slowly changing. 
These women deserved their lives every bit as the rest of us. I learned about a neat technique that police use to get inmates talking during my research. Police have playing cards printed with the faces of cold case victims. And when inmates are playing with the cards and see the face of someone that they have information on, they can't help but boast and brag about what they've done. Police make sure that they have their narc's ears open. And this is how police got Bill to confess his crimes to another inmate. Bill told Jonathan Mills about how he had killed Joyveline Martinez, along with other women in his murder mobile, when he saw her face on a playing card. Bill told Jonathan that he had a monster inside of himself, and he called the monster the Sick Ripper. Police kept searching the area in which they had found the three women. And I don't know why it took so long, maybe the area is bigger than I imagine it, but it took until 2015 for police to find the bodies of Nilsa Arismendi, who Bill was already in prison spending time for murdering, and Maria Gonzalez, Melanie Ruth Camilni, and Denny Lee Wisnat, also known as Janice Roberts. Bill admitted to a jailmate that during the murder of one of his victims, he was raping her and trying to strangle her, but for some reason, he couldn't. So he hit her in the head with a hammer. It was cold outside, so he kept her body in his van for two weeks. He slept next to her and called her baby. For some reason, he cut, her, he cut off her fingertips. I'm not sure which victim this story goes with. I've seen it referenced with a couple of different names. And in one source, I read that he claimed to have drove this particular victim to Virginia to dispose of her body. Because of this, I'm not attaching that story to any particular victim name. And I feel the story is just kind of horrible and disrespectful anyway. And I'm sure none of these victims want that story attached to their name. But this woman could potentially be an eighth victim. A few still images from the videos found in Bill's van were released. It was just a few identifiable frames. I don't think that they are certain that Bill killed this person. They just suspect that Bill may have. None of Bill's victims were actually identified as being any of the women in the videos, but they don't know if the women in the videos could be potential victims. None of them have been identified. Bill claims that his urge was to rape and that the murder just came along with it to cover up his rape. I feel like that's a really big stretch because sleeping next to a body for two weeks makes what Bill said about murder seem like a huge lie. He claims he never set out to murder. But I think that if you're going to sleep next to a dead body willingly for two weeks, you're a murderer deep inside your soul. I don't know if he's trying to fool us or himself. Bill would often do these things in the parking lot of the same McDonald's, making sure that all the other cars were just far away to not know what was going on. He was doing this while people were just eating their dinner, while teenagers were at work at their first place of employment. And he would even drive through the drive-thru 
with the women still alive, but beaten and tied up in the back. He would order breakfast, feed her her last meal, and then murder her brutally. He would wrap the women in garbage bags and heave them over the same guardrail that he heaved Nelsa over and watch them roll down the same embankment into the spot he would later refer to as his garden. Nilsa Arismende, 33 of Hartford, Connecticut, was known to her family as Coco. She was born in Long Island. She was survived by her four children, and at the time of her obituary, had four grandchildren. Marilyn Mendez Gonzalez, 26, of Waterbury, Connecticut, was survived by her mother, her two children, and never got to meet her future grandchildren. Joy Valine Martinez, known as Joy to those who loved her, many, many family members came to rally for Jovaline when they knew that she was missing and when they knew that she was murdered. Joy Valine was only 23 years old. She was from East Hartford, Connecticut. She was a track star. Mary Jane Menard was a 40-year-old substance abuse counselor. She was a Patriots and Red Sox fan. She loved to help others. She was survived by her two children. She's the only victim that doesn't seem to fit the other victims' profiles, and I'm not sure how she got mixed up in this situation. Melanie Ruth Camelini was a 29-year-old mother of two. Despite problems that she had, she always remained close to her family and never strayed far from home. Danny Lee Wisnat was a 44-year-old transgender woman who was also known as Janice Roberts. I can't find much on Danny, but she was not a drug user, but did engage in prostitution. Diane Cusack was 55 and from New Britain, Connecticut. She was survived by her brother and was never married, and she didn't have any children. Bill maintained his innocence for a while, but six out of seven victims were linked to Bill's van with their DNA. In a surprise twist, Bill decided to plead guilty to his crimes. When asked the reason, Bill stated that he wanted to spare the families of his victims the trial. Bill also felt like he should spare the taxpayers the burden. William Devin Havel was sentenced to 360 years in prison for these horrific crimes. He wanted to die by lethal injection, but did not get his wish. He persists his apologies to the families of the victims. He insists that he wants them to feel better because of his punishment. He acts as though he's remorseful for his crimes. And maybe he is, but maybe it's also just an act. Maybe Bill wants to seem like a good person and not the murdering, evil man that he is. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of Coffee Murder Mystery. Tune in next Sunday for a brand new episode. And if you want ad-free episodes or more content, think about joining our Patreon. It's just $5 a month. Stay safe and remember, evil people are everywhere. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Coffee, Murder, and Mystery. 
You can find us on the web at www.coffeemurderandmystery.com. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we also have a YouTube channel. All references for today's podcast are available in our show notes. If you enjoyed our show, please consider giving us an Apple Podcast five-star rating, sharing our show with your friends, and leaving a review. This helps us by allowing more people to find our show. If you would like to support our show with a financial contribution, please consider joining our Patreon. Joining our Patreon at the $5 level will give you a bonus episode on the second week of the month, as well as a second bonus episode on the fourth week of the month. Or go to buymeacoffee.com for a one-time contribution. We appreciate all of our listeners. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. Thank you so much for listening. The information provided in this podcast is solely of our opinion and based upon research that we have conducted via the internet. If you feel that we have represented something inaccurately or unfairly, you can send us an email at coffeemurdermystery at gmail.com. Thanks for your support.